So Jake always says I take too long to start. I stand up here and move stuff around and move the night, the music stand around. So I told him I was going to sit up here for 30 seconds and not say anything. <laughs> um, so Jake said something last week that was so true. Uh, well, he probably hopefully said a lot of things last week when he preached that were true. But there's one, there's one thing that, that, this is more of a Jake roast than anything. Today. Um, but he said something about cultural Christianity in the South. Um, a few years ago, Courtney and I were in Charleston at a wedding, and we we really enjoy Charleston. It's a fun city. Um, probably the epicenter of there's an epicenter of of cultural Christianity. Maybe Birmingham, maybe Charles. You know, there's some big southern cities where it's just part of who they are. It's what they grew up with. You grew up with church, and um, so she, as we're driving back from Charleston back to Tampa, she says, "Hey, um, I want to be a missionary." And, you know, obviously that, when your wife says she wants to be a missionary, requires a little more conversation. So I said, would you care to elaborate? And she said, I just would, I would love to one day start a church at a big city in the South. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of churches in big cities in the South. But her, her point was, she said, you know, when you're, at a, when you're at a wedding and you're at a rehearsal dinner and you're with family and you're waking up the next day and having breakfast, with, I mean, you just, you're, you're interacting with a large group of people over a two-day period. So you're getting to meet a lot of people, talk to a lot of people, find out who they are, find out what they stand for, what they believe in, that kind of thing. And she just said, look, I just feel like, you know, so many people in the South, they were brought up with church. And it's just who they are. And it's what they do. They know all the right answers to all the questions. But Jesus, for a lot of them, and you know that could be for me at times as well, but Jesus, for a lot of them, he doesn't mean a whole lot. And you know, she was not like nitpicking on particular people, just more of a general stereotype. But she said, look, Jesus was never actually king of their lives. They know what to say. They know the words. If you ask them the questions, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll know the answers. I mean, there are people who pray, people who go on mission trips, but they were never truly born again. And one day, I, th- I think, and there's a lot of scripture that backs this up, that there will be a group of people that will stand before God and be shocked that they aren't part of the family of God. And that's not me saying that. There's a lot of scripture to back that up. But live their lives under the assumption that, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, Barna does these studies of Americans and these Christianity in America. And, you know, 75% of the last one done in 2015 of Americans say they're a Christian. That's, those are pretty staggering numbers compared to what you may see in the workplace or what you may see in your neighborhood. You know, so a lot of people identify as Christians. But the real question and what we're going to study today is, were they ever really born again? And that's a super important question. I don't say that and start with that to scare you. Um, I, I don't want to make you question your faith and, well, am I really a Christian? Am I not a Christian? But today we're going to learn and hear from probably one of the most religious guys in all of Scripture. And I, I give it air quotes for a reason, but one of the most religious guys in all of Scripture, a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus missed the mark. All right, so turn to John chapter 3. We're going to continue with our study through the book of John. And let's just get going. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we're going to stop right there as we always do. So during this time when Jesus was on earth and walked the earth, Rome was the, the ruling party. 
Okay, they had conquered, their Roman Empire was, was building, and even though they were in charge, they tended to stay hands-off. Ah, oh, the air just came on. Good. Um, <laughs> they tend to stay hands-off. So what they would do, and if you know anything about the Roman Empire, I love that kind of history, maybe the Greek Empire before that, but the Roman Empire, they go in, they conquer an area, and they essentially leave them alone. They go in, they expand their empire, they put a military presence there, they want to make sure there's peace, they want to make sure you know, nobody's messing with them. They'll step in if they need to, if everybody gets out of line, the Romans will step in and try to make things right. You can see that when Jesus was crucified, right before he was crucified, you kind of got this back and forth between the Romans and the Jews. The Jews want to crucify him, the Romans are like, I don't really know if we should do that. And so that's, that's kind of what's going on. Um, but essentially, the Jews are allowed to rule in Jerusalem. So you had different religious parties that were in the day, and one of them was the Pharisees. So really the only thing you need to understand about the Pharisees is they were all about God's law. The main thing they did, they were serious about obeying the Old Testament law. So the Old Testament law, for those of you who don't know, if you read through um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's 613 commandments. You know, you've heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, there's 613 commandments kind of broader commandments, 248 do's and 365 don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. There were about 6,000 Pharisees, and probably they weren't all like that, but I'd say by and large the goal of the Pharisees was to obey, try to obey, they obviously couldn't do it, but try to obey all of those laws. So when you, when you pledge to become a Pharisee like we see in Nicodemus, he pledged in front of three witnesses to try and uphold every detail of the law for the rest of his life. So, right up front, it's safe to say Nicodemus was religious. Right? He wasn't some atheist, some agnostic, somebody who didn't want anything to do with God. He was a religious person. It says he was part of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men and the high priest, so 71 total. And it kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier. They were allowed to rule, allowed to make some judicial decisions. Um, And so they were, maybe you call them the Supreme Court of the day. Um, to, but to be a member of the Sanhedrin meant you were at the very top of Jewish society. Right? Think about all the Jews that were there. and you were, If you were part of the Sanhedrin, you were a big deal. All right? There's also evidence from first century, kind of extra biblical evidence, that he was part of one of the three wealthiest land-owning families of the time. Okay, so if you're trying to get a picture of who this is that's coming to Jesus in John chapter 3, he was zealous for religion, he was wealthy, he was a great teacher. In fact, in verse 10, as we get to verse 10, it says, he, Jesus says, you are the teacher of the land. And when he says you're the teacher of the land, he's not saying you are a teacher. He is saying you are the teacher of the land. If you read it, it's saying, look, you are, you're one of the biggest teachers of the land. People look to you for advice. They look to you for wisdom. He would have memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most of you can't even get through the first five books of the Bible. And this dude had them memorized. All right. Anybody ever done that before? Not read them, memorized them. Okay. So it's safe to say you'd want this guy as your pastor. Just outside appearances, watching how he lived his life, watching how, what he did, watching how disciplined he is. If you were picking a pastor, you'd say, well, that guy's, you know, why, why wouldn't we choose him? He doesn't even have to use his Bible to preach through the Torah. Like he's, he knows this stuff, all right? Phenomenal teacher, amazing theologian, insanely obedient to the Old Testament scriptures. Upper echelon of society. 
So if anyone is going to heaven, no questions asked, who do you think it is? It's Nicodemus. Jesus is a good answer too, but Nicodemus. All right, and here's the crazy thing. We're going to see in the next few verses that Nicodemus comes to Jesus. So in spite of all he has, all he is, all he represents, all he stands for, there's still something missing in his life. If there wasn't something missing, he wouldn't have come to Jesus. There's still a piece of his heart, a piece of his life that he just can't quite wrap his mind around. And so he's coming to find Jesus. And he sets up this meeting between him and Jesus. And he says in verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he comes to Jesus, and probably one of the more interesting things is he comes to Jesus by night. And if you read commentaries and study this, you're going to get a billion explanations, ideas, theories on why he came by night. Maybe he was ashamed, you know, as a member of the Sanhedrin, as a Pharisee. He didn't want them to know that he was seeking out this new rabbi, this new teacher that had come into the land to ask him questions. Um, Maybe he knew Jesus was busy during the day. I mean, you watch Jesus during the day. If you wanted uninterrupted time to ask questions, you'd probably go at night when you knew that he wasn't with all the crowds and all the people. Um, but here's the thing. The, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why he came. Um, but you'll see throughout John's gospel, you'll see it again at the end of this chapter and throughout his gospel, these parallels, these references between these contrasts between darkness and light. And it's not even that it's spiritual darkness it's just something about night. And so when I read this and I'm like, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, like he says, we know you're a teacher. I want to know more about it. Um, I, I don't wonder, this is not in the Bible, but since it doesn't tell us why, I, I wonder if he wasn't, didn't lay his head on his pillow or his bale of hay or straw or whatever they used for pillows back then, but he laid his head on his pillow and everything just starts running through his mind. You, ever, you, ever, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, he lays his head on his pillow at night and all of a sudden he's like, I just, I, I can't take this anymore. Like, I, I have to know what's going on. I have to know who he is. I have to know who he stands for. Um, you know, he's really successful. He's a great teacher. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He had it all together. But at night, his mind started running. Hit the pillow and something was missing. And I, I know for a fact that happens to people today. I know for a fact that that happens to you because it happens to me. At all together during the day, people are coming to you. They need your advice. They need your help. You're this problem solver, all right? But when your head hits the pillow at the end of the night, something's not quite right. Something's maybe a little unsettled. Something's not satisfied. Worry starts to set in. Stress starts to set in. Your mind starts racing. And, and just like Nicodemus, you're like, I got to talk to Jesus. Like, I got I to gotta do something about this. And, you know, the crazy thing is, I, I know it's true because it's happened to me. As I look at my life and I look at some of my most desperate cries for help, some of my most desperate prayers to Jesus happen in the middle of the night. When all, when you just you don't know what's happening. You don't know where life is taking you. You're sitting here. You're thinking through problems. You're thinking through situations. You wake up. It's three o'clock. You stare. You can't go back to sleep. And all of a sudden, your mind just starts racing. And I, I can't put my finger on what it is. I I don't know you know why it happens. But I can almost guarantee you that this could be what happened to Nicodemus. 
worry sets in, stress sets in. And here's, here's what I want to encourage you to do before we go any further. I want to encourage you for the next week that when you lay in your bed at night, you turn the TV off, you put the phone by the bedside, you don't pick up the phone, because we all know we're guilty of that. Right? You pacify those thoughts, you pacify those feelings, you pacify some of that stress sometimes, and instead of praying about it and asking God for help, what do we do? We turn on Netflix. We turn on something that's just mind-numbing, get on our phone, watch sports highlights, watch what, you know, get on Pinterest, you know, whatever, whatever it is we do to pass the time. I know Jesse gets on Pinterest. Whatever, whatever it is we do <laughs> to pass the time. But here's, here's what I encourage you to do. Don't let yourself fall asleep this week with the remote falling out of your hand. Don't let yourself fall asleep this week with the phone falling on your head because, you, you know, you've had it up and all of a sudden you just... That's how we fall asleep. Fall asleep this week in prayer. Fall asleep just for seven days. For seven days, when you go to bed, have no technology in bed, nothing in bed, just get in your bed and start praying. Lord, this is the, the time when my mind tends to run. This is the time when I have the tendency not to trust you. This is the time, where, you know, the time of the day, the time of the night when everything is gone, everything's unsettled, and I just, I'm going to pray. You might last 30 seconds because you fall asleep. But I promise you, that's a good 30 seconds. And you might last 5 minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but you had 15 minutes with God in prayer. And I, I, I promise you, if you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning and you do those same, same things, the trajectory of your day is different. And so that would be my challenge for you. So Nicodemus finds Jesus in the middle of the night. We don't know why, but he comes and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And it's an interesting response because Nicodemus didn't even ask a question. He didn't say, how do I get eternal life? He just basically states, we know you're from God. But Jesus knows why he's there. So Jesus says, you know, he, says, Nick, or he said to him, he goes, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And, you know, when I read that, when I first read that, it seems almost like a ridiculous question. Like, I almost wondered if he was being sarcastic. Like, what do you mean born again? You know, am I going to crawl into my mother's womb and be born? I mean, it just sounds, it really, it sounds stupid. But I, you know, when you think about who Nicodemus was and what he stood for, I don't think he was being sarcastic at all. I think it was almost panic. He was panicking because for Nicodemus and most of the Jews of the day, their birthright into heaven was because of the fact that they were born a Jew. That's the way they viewed it. The way they viewed the world is, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew by birth, I'm okay, I'm a part of God's family, I'm getting into the kingdom of heaven, and you know, I'm I'm a Pharisee, I obey the law, I'm doing everything it takes to have an adequate entrance into heaven. And it was so ingrained in his thinking that when Jesus says, look, you've got to be born again. I mean, I'm imagining him saying, okay, do I need to be born a Syrian? Like, do I need to be born a Samaritan? Like, how how can I, are you saying that Jews aren't good enough to get into heaven? Like, I... Like you can, you, can, you can run through his head all the things that he was probably thinking in that moment. So the question just came out almost sarcastically. Like, how can I do that? How can I be born from a different descent? How can I be born from a different mom? And that's not what Jesus is saying. So in verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So Nicodemus needed to be born spiritually, not just physically. And really, he should not have been, knowing as much as he knows about Scripture, and knowing as much as he knows about the Old Testament, he should not have been surprised for a second that Jesus said this. All right, Jesus is most likely referring to Ezekiel 36, at least as one of the, the pictures of what he's saying. Ezekiel 36 says, and it's a really crazy chapter. I would encourage you sometime this week to read Ezekiel 36. Uh, you probably haven't been in Ezekiel in a while, but I would encourage you to write this down and kind of read through that chapter and the one that follows. But he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. That's key. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you see, we need a new heart that desires God. So here's the thing. For, for Nicodemus and for a Pharisee, it was all about obedience. It was all about obedience from the law. But what Jesus is after is he's not after obedience per se, He's after obedience that grows from a desire in your heart to love him and to follow him. Right? If you had two people side by side, one of them was obeying, 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 the one next to him was obeying, obeying, obeying. On the surface, you look at them, there's no difference. But one of them's doing it out of an overflow of a love for God, and the other one maybe is trying to do it to earn their right to be in front of God. And Jesus is basically walking through what is required to get into heaven. And so it's huge because this is the key to your Christian life. Think about growing up. All right, you're a little kid. You're born, you develop, you grow, you get a personality, you get attitudes, characteristics of who you are, who you become. I've got a three-year-old daughter, Isabella. She's about this big. And she is a fireball. Like like a fireball. She's got a little attitude and I'm probably just getting a taste and foreshadowing of teenage years and what's to come. And if that's the case, I'm just terrified. But I remember I brought her up here a few weeks ago and, you know, I brought her up here. We were talking about adoption and stuff like that. And Courtney said that after the service, she was walking around and, you know, some of the ladies were coming over and saying hi. And Courtney said she just looks right at one lady who came up and was super sweet to her. And she goes, I know like you. And then she just turned around and put her head on Courtney. And Courtney said she was like, are you serious, this kid? Um, so if you meet Isabella, she takes after... No, just kidding. <laughs> um, but we've all been there, right? You hit 20 years old, 25 years old, you get pretty set in your ways. Am I right? The older you get, the more set in your ways you get. You're like, this is who I am. I'm about traveling. I'm about vacations. I'm about my looks. I'm about staying fit and strong, beautiful. I'm all about money. I'm all about sports. You know, everything in my life revolves around sports. You know, maybe kind of you tail to the other side. You know, I'm an addict, and I can't change that. It's, you know, at least what's going on in your mind. It's who I am. I'm an addict. I'm addicted to this or addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs or addicted to pornography or whatever it is, and I just can't change that. And maybe it's not your personality. Um, maybe it's just a characteristic about you. I'm an angry person. You ever heard somebody say that? I'm angry. I can't change that. This is the way I am. You ever heard anybody say that? I can't change that just the way I am. I'm just, I'm just an angry person. All right? Or I'm just untrusting. Or I'm just jealous. And they get in a fight with someone, or you get in a fight with someone, you say, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. You ever heard somebody say that? I mean, that's, that's the picture you're getting here. I mean, when you hit 30, it's almost impossible to make a shift. It's almost impossible in your own human effort 
to change who you are. You were born in the flesh. This is who you are. This is who you're becoming. This is what you develop. And what is born of the flesh is flesh. Okay? And Paul describes the flesh and its workings to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and he goes on and on and on. And he says, And I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the flesh is flesh and you can't clean the flesh. Jesus says you need a new birth. You need to be born again. Not born of the flesh, because the flesh breeds sin. You were born into sin. You need the Spirit. You need to be born of the Spirit. And the Spirit gives new life, right? The Spirit creates, I know this seems elementary maybe to some of you, but the Spirit creates a new heart in you and new desires within you. So all of a sudden now you want to know who God is. You want to know all you can about Jesus. You start going to church. Never went to church before. Used to make fun of people who went to church. Now all of a sudden you're in church. Used to make fun of people who read the Bible. Now you get up and you read it every morning. That is a new heart that's inside of you. That is new desires inside of you implanted there by the God of the universe. Before you wouldn't even step foot in a church and now you're here. Okay, and the, the reason I like that is because you're slowly becoming more and more like Christ because of his Holy Spirit that resides inside of you. And it's not because you're trying harder. You're not waking up every morning and being like, all right, I've got to be patient today. I've got to love people today. I've got to be nice today. It's the Holy Spirit of God that's making you more like God. And all of a sudden you're loving people more. You're caring for people more. And it's just, it's who you're becoming. It's like fresh air, fresh breath being breathed by God into your soul, into your heart. That's what Jesus goes on in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I love, I love this picture. All right, now think, think about Nicodemus is sitting here having a conversation with Jesus. You ever sat on the back porch, talk to somebody in the middle of the night? You ever sat on the front porch, talk to somebody in the middle of the night? Like just hanging out, chilling, Nicodemus and Jesus are outside. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is trying to explain to him, look, just the fact that you try to keep all 613 commandments, just the fact that you keep the 10 commandments, just the fact that you do this and you go to temple and you do all these things, those are not what I'm after. I'm not after your works. I'm not after this list of things that you're trying to do. I'm after your heart. He's trying to explain it. Nicodemus isn't quite getting it. And all of a sudden the wind blows in the trees. Right? You can picture the scene. The wind blows in the trees and all of a sudden they both can feel it on their skin and the wind's going, the trees are going back and forth and Jesus goes, it's just like that. You can't explain where it comes from, but the Holy Spirit of God is breathing air into your life and making you more and more like Christ. All right, Courtney's parents have a wind chime in their house. I'm not really into wind chimes. Some of you may be. Jake strikes me as somebody who would be into wind chimes. <laughs> Are you in the wind chimes? You've never heard my wind chimes. <laughs> All right, just stop. <laughs> um, but I, I will say for a wind chime, it's a pretty cool wind chime. So it's got these, you know, different notes. And, and the thing is, I'll hear it, 
You know how sound will sometimes, I mean, Dick Clark always said that music is the soundtrack of our lives. You hear a song and it takes you back to exactly where you were. You remember the first time you heard it? I mean, that's just what happens. And so, you know, I hear that wind chime and it just so many memories come back of, you know, being up there in holidays and Christmases and stuff like that. So when I go to their house, I always want to hear the wind chime. And so, but the sad part is so often when I go to visit, I'll go on the porch and there'll be no wind. And it's just sitting there dead. It's not moving, and I'm just, I'm like, got a fan. I'm trying to fan it to make it go. And with all my effort and all my work to make it blow, it still doesn't blow. And even if it did, I get tired halfway through and I just quit because, you know, it's just not the same. I need the wind to make it alive. I need the wind to blow. And all of a sudden, you'll be sitting there on the porch, you know, just chilling. All of a sudden, the wind will blow, and you'll hear the, the little wind chime make its noises. And here's the thing. We need the Holy Spirit of God to blow fresh life into our lives. Just like that wind chime. We need him to stir our hearts. We need him to stir our affections. Those are things that cannot be stirred by you. You can play a part through discipline and reading the word and praying. and like You, you, you may have a small role in that, but you need the Holy Spirit to blow fresh air into your lives. And Nicodemus is completely baffled. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? These are the last words we hear from Nicodemus. Confusion. Last words we hear in scripture from Nicodemus, how can these things be? Now we'll see him mentioned a few more times in John, but this is the last time we hear of him speak. But if you think, here's the thing, if you think about it for a second, put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. If after this you went over and went to, you know, Fresh Market or Kiki's or one of those, and you went to talk to people, and you, you just asked them a simple question, how do you get to heaven? you're probably going to get a lot of similar responses as you got from Nicodemus. I go to church, read my Bible, I try to pray when things get tough, my marriage is pretty good, I listen to Spirit FM at least once a week. And you know, you you name these Christian things that people do, and these religious things that people do, much like Nicodemus, maybe just looks a little different in our day and age, but Nicodemus had the same list. He had the same, when he was talking to Jesus, his entrance into heaven was all these things he had done. And Jesus said, I don't care about the things you've done. You, you cannot interact with a perfect God unless somebody pays the price. Unless somebody, unless there's somebody who is giving you entrance into heaven. And Jesus says in verse 10, he says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So, I mean, he's, Jesus is basically saying, are you kidding me? You're a, you're a teacher of Old Testament law. You're a teacher of the Old Testament. You probably have Ezekiel memorized and Joel memorized and Jeremiah memorized and Isaiah memorized. You know all this stuff and yet you don't know all of these verses. You don't know all of these things that speak to me. Like, how can this be? Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? He says, you've read Ezekiel, so you probably know that I'm going to take up your heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. You've read Isaiah. You know there's a new creation coming. You've read Joel. You know my spirit is going to be poured out on all men. And he says, you know, what do you mean you don't know? And so then in verse 11, and this is where we all need to focus, verse 11, Jesus basically says, he gives him the double amen in, in the, the actual original text, and he says here, truly, truly, I'm about to tell you how this can be. I'm about to tell you how someone gets, who can have a relationship with God in heaven, how you have right standing with God. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. 
and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. So basically he's saying, look, you've never ascended into heaven. You, don't, you have not seen ultimate truth from God's perspective. He goes, you have opinions, you have ways you think it is. Trust me, they're just opinions. I'm telling you what's truly right. I came down from heaven and I speak the truth. In verse, verse 14 he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what, you know, what, what's crazy to me is John 3.16 is probably one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. Even if you never went to church in your whole life, you've probably seen it at football games and sporting events, and you've probably at least heard the verse. These are the verses that immediately precede John 3.16. So, you know, for God's love the world, he gave his love. You know, right before that are these verses that say, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So it's crazy to me that that's what directly precedes probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. He's talking about a serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. So he's going back to Romans, or Romans, Numbers 21. So I put some verses up there, Numbers 21. And here's what happened. The Israelites had just come out of Egypt. And what did the Israelites always do when they first came out of Egypt? When they came out of their, you know, God blessed them and then they complained and they rebelled and they got stiff-necked and then they started all over again, right? They, you know, Jesus or God took care of them and delivered them and then they complained and rebelled. And it was just kind of this weird cycle you see all through the Old Testament. So it says, the Bible says they became impatient with God. Numbers 21.4, from Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. There is an entire sermon on that one phrase, that last sentence. And the people became impatient on the way. But we'll keep moving. We'll preach that another day. And the people spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So they're angry about the food, and they're angry about, they're being impatient about the time it's taking. And essentially, here's what happened. If you go back in the history of the Israelites, God delivered them out of Egypt. They had the ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw Moses on Mount Sinai. They got the ten. I mean, they're being led by fire and by clouds. And I mean, talk about having God right in front of you every step of the way and showing you who he is and what he stands for. They got impatient. They doubted God. They began to complain. And their heart started to wander to other things. So that's, that's what happened. And it's the classic picture of sin. For you and for me. Everything's going good. We're following God. And all of a sudden we start to doubt. Maybe he's not going to do what he said he was going to do. Maybe he's not as good as he said he was. And our belief starts to wane a little. We grow dissatisfied with what he's doing and how he's leading. We become impatient with his timing. Should I say that one again? We become impatient with his timing and our hearts wander and serve other gods. And maybe those gods don't have names like they did for the Israelites, but it's just other idols, other things we're serving, all right? I'm not satisfied with you, God. I need to go find romance to give me joy and peace and hope and satisfaction. I need to go find a better job. I need to go find money. I need to go find comfort. I need to go find all these other things. And so in verse 6 of Numbers 21, he says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of, the, many of people of Israel died. 
And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So I know this is a little tough, but imagine the scene. It's kind of, I mean, it's like right out of a horror flick. But if you imagine the scene, I mean, there's people getting bitten by serpents, writhing in pain. And Moses puts up this pole, this long pole in the ground and puts a bronze serpent up there. And if the people got bit, all they had to do is try to lay eyes on the serpent and they were healed. That was their deliverance. Their deliverance was a bronze serpent on a pole. And Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Jesus would be lifted up on a cross, so that all we have to do is look to him and be saved. That's, that's the picture he's telling us. And what's crazy is God chose a serpent to depict his son. And I know it would be hard to get a lamb up there or a goat up there or, you know, some other animal for Moses to get this, you know, this animal up there. But why a serpent? And I realize the serpents are what we're biting them and infecting them. But out of all the things for the people to look to for salvation, it's a serpent. But, but here's the picture. The serpent was the result of their sin. The serpent's the one that had to do with their original sin. Right? The serpent is the one that God, or God told Moses to put a serpent up there. Look to that serpent. And here's the thing. When Jesus came and Jesus came to earth, he stomped the serpent. He said, forget the serpent. I crushed the serpent. Now you look to me. You look at me hanging on the cross. And if you lay eyes on me and you believe in me and you have faith in me, you'll be saved. You know why I did it. You know why I came. You know what I came to do. He was put on a stick, put on a pole, put on a cross that we may not perish, but we may live. And then he goes on to probably the most famous verse in the Bible and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, when you, when you work up in the context to John 3.16, you've heard John 3.16, but it's almost an afterthought to everything you've heard in the first 15 verses of the passage. It's a build, it's a build. It's Nicodemus, why are you doing this? Nicodemus, why are you looking to your works? Nicodemus, why are you doing this? All of a sudden, you know, think of, think of the deliverance of the Israelites. Back in Numbers chapter 21, they had to look to the serpent. Nicodemus, look to me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am your deliverer, look to me. All right, D.L. Moody tells the story of a lady who was a very busy worker inside the church. And one day Moody was sharing with, some, sharing with everybody some very plain truths from God's word. And at the end, the lady raises her hand and angrily said, Mr. Moody, what do you mean to tell me that I, an educated woman, taught from childhood in good ways, and all my life interested in the church and interested in doing good, must enter heaven the same way as the worst criminals of our day? He said, no, madam, I'm not telling you that. God's telling you that. He says, everyone who would enter heaven, no matter how good they think they are, or how well educated, or how zealous in good works they are, must be born again. 
It's as simple as that. And how amazing is that? You don't have to have a doctorate in theology. You don't have to go to seminary. It's not complicated. It's not tough. Don't overthink it. But the the simple question I think for you and for me is very plainly, have you been born again? I didn't ask you if you went to church. I didn't ask you if you read your Bible. I said, have you been born again? For those of you who don't know, I have a five-year-old son named Jaden. And if you know anything about little boys, they like to get dirty. All right? So he'll ask if he can go in the backyard, and I'll say, sure, go in the backyard. You know, buy me five minutes of some downtime, and I'll, you know, I'll look out in the backyard. And, you know, we got a pretty decent-sized backyard filled with grass, and he has found the one patch of dirt in the entire backyard. The one, I mean, it's not even two feet in circumference, and he has found it. And not only has he found it, not only is he playing with his little trucks in it, but he has found the garden hose... And he has gone over, I mean, I don't even know how he can do it. He has, you know, go 30, 40 feet, 50 feet away. And he takes the garden hose over and he walks back over. I mean, I can just see his little brain working. He goes back over and turns the hose on. Then he's made himself a big pile of mess. And so I go, you know, I go in the backyard and I'm like, dude, what the heck are you doing? Like, what has happened? And you got mud everywhere. It's even on your forehead. And what do you think he does? Oh, it's on my forehead, you know, and he'll, like, it wasn't on his cheeks before, but now it's on his cheeks, because now he's trying to feel his forehead, which is already covered in dirt, and, you know, here's, here's the thing, here's what I want you to understand about Nicodemus, about the church, about religion, is if you don't have a new heart, if you haven't been born again, if the Holy Spirit has not come into your life and cleaned you up, you can wipe away all you want. You can wipe, try and wipe all the mud out of your life that you want. All you're going to do is smear it. Because you can't clean yourself up. You need a new heart. Nicodemus was trying to do something from flesh, which was born of flesh, which was born of flesh, and he could flesh all day long. But that wasn't going to do it for him. He needed to be born of the Spirit. All right, Jesus says to Nicodemus, I am the way, the truth, the life. Well, actually says it in John 14. I'm saying it now. Um, he says, look unto me for salvation. John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You know, Jesus could have come as to the world anything he wanted to come as. He could have come as a judge, destroy everybody, every rebellious sinner. He could have smite him the second he came down to earth. But he came as a servant, a humble servant, a savior. He was hung on a cross and he died for our sins. He became that uplifted serpent, as weird as that sounds. Right? The serpent that in Moses' day brought physical healing, now he gives us eternal healing in our day. So as we close, I'm asking you the same question again. Have you ever been born again? Didn't ask if you're doing the church. Didn't ask if you read your Bible. I didn't ask if your good works obey your bad works. I said, have you ever been born again? First John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Um, On January 6th, 1850, 
A snowstorm almost crippled the whole city of Colchester, England. And a teenage boy was unable to get to the church he usually attended. So he made his way to a nearby primitive Methodist chapel where an ill-prepared layman was substituting for the absent Snowden professor. And the text that that substitute preacher decided to teach was out of Isaiah 45, 22. And it says, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he says, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now look and don't, don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. And you may be the biggest fool, and yet you can still look. A man needn't be worth a thousand, a thousand a year, make a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. He said in a thick accent, many of you are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text when he said this, Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And we had gone on about the length of ten minutes or so. He about preached all he had to preach. And he looked down at me under the gallery, and I dare say with few people present, he must have known I was a stranger. And fixing his eyes on me, as he knew all of my hearts, and with all his heart said, Young man, you look miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow, and it struck home. And he continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey this text. But if you obey now, in this moment, you'll be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted only as a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. The young man did look by faith. And that was how the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon became a child of God. When you hear stories like that, and you just see how God's moving and how God wants relationships with everybody. Everybody in this room right now could be sitting in Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon would go on to be one of the best preachers of the time. And that, that is the story of how God spoke to him through a very simple message from a simple deliverer, a layman, who was preaching because the pastor was snowed in, but yet he said, look to Jesus for salvation. And if you've never, ever done that, I would encourage you to do that. Don't look to your works. Don't look for how often you come to church. Just very simply ask yourself the question, have I ever put my faith and trust in Christ? All right, let's pray.